Welcome to Series 2 of the Saltwater Strategists, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jennifer Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the maritime security challenges and opportunities in the current geostrategic environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics, international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. The Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by BAE Systems. One of the things that I really push my students over when we talk about this is around this relationship between new technology and existing strategy or concept of operations and how actually you have to put those two into conversation. So you need to be able to adapt the technology to suit what you want to do and you need to be able to adapt what you want to do to make the best out of the technology. And getting that balance right is really hard. Today we are pleased to have Dr. Richard Dunley with us to discuss the recent release of the Hunter Class ANAO audit, AUKUS submarines and developments in uncrewed surface vessels. Dr. Richard Dunley is a senior lecturer at UNSW Canberra at the Australian Defence Force Academy. His research and teaching addresses issues across naval history and maritime strategy. A particular focus has been on interactions of naval technology and maritime strategy in both historical and contemporary contexts. We're delighted to have Richard join us today to unpack a number of topical issues for Australia in the maritime domain. Richard, it's great to have you here today on the Saltwater Strategists. Thanks, Jen. So, um, Richard, really excited to have you on board. You've written a number of topical articles recently uh, about the Hunter class and the uh, ANAO audit, which many of our listeners would be familiar with, about AUKUS and nuclear submarines, uh, and also about USVs. So I'd like to touch on all of those topics today, but if you don't mind, we'll start first with the uh, Hunter Class Audit and your recent article in Aspie as a strategist. Your article was entitled Weighing the Risks in Naval Shipbuilding Procurement, and you looked at the outcomes of the ANO audit. Would you mind giving us an overview of the audit and some of its outcomes? Yeah, no problem. So I guess I'll pull out a couple of, of key issues. One of the first ones that, that came out and got quite a lot of attention was around the, the decision-making with questions being raised about how the Type 26, the the reference design, the BAE design that was eventually chosen, how it first ended up on the shortlist. There were were questions about whether or not it it, it actually sort of made it into the top three originally. Um, And then again, as to, to why it ended up being selected when, as was stated in some of the documents, initially at least it was seen as a sort of being ranked further down the list. And I think these questions were in many ways compounded by some pretty significant issues with record keeping. These were, were minimised in the, the response by defence, but I think it's, it's still, when you actually sit down and look at it, it's pretty shocking in some ways. So there was a failure to keep records of some of the really key committee meetings, including the Defence Committee, one of the highest bodies in the land in some ways, making some of the most significant decisions. Um, The meeting of the Defence Committee, which decided ultimately on um, recommending the the Type 26 to to government, and the previous record of the the decision to put the um, Type 26 onto the shortlist. 
Now, I know in, in recent uh, Senate estimates, there was some suggestion of, of something of a conspiracy going on there, or at least that was, was very much implied. I have honestly no idea, but I would su- suggest that seems somewhat unlikely. But it is a, a, a real worry, this idea that a body of the significance of the Defence Committee making a decision of this kind of significance that we, we seemingly only a, a few years out um, have, have lost the, the minutes of. So that was one of the, the the real sort of big big flags that came up. Another area where the report shed some light was around the the kind of known issues of cost escalation and time frame uh, sort of issues, potential delays. And this was, I guess, more adding uh, color and detail to stuff that was already broadly known and had been raised in in things like the ANAO uh, uh, major projects report. But there are a couple of specific quotes, including one from the head of Navy capability and another from the first assistant secretary uh, about the particularly the cost blowout that that looked particularly worrying. So that is is something that really sort of um, came through to me. Um, and I guess in that respect, the report then aligns with the, the much more recent reporting, I guess, in the past day or so of the very negative view, supposedly at least taken by the DSR authors um, the Defence Strategic Review authors of the project. And the reporting in, in the Australian, at least, was, was suggesting that the first draft or one of the early drafts of the um, the full version of the DSR recommended cutting the project altogether. So there's clearly something very significant going on there. The issue that I, I sort of focused on in the blog was specifically one of, of risk. And this idea uh, which comes through and, and was was stated by one of the the sort of the earlier internal reviews of of the um, the project that defence chose the design with the greatest potential capability, but also the greatest risk, primarily due to what was acknowledged at the time to be the the relative design immaturity, and I think that this is quite a, an interesting frame through which to to look at some of the issues and, and questions that are currently facing defence naval procurement. It is really interesting, and uh, I really enjoyed your article on it, Richard. Um, I guess for for our listeners uh, who might be overseas, uh, who don't have a background on the Hunter class, um, so it is the uh, identified future frigate, uh, as Richard mentions, uh, due to be delivered now in the early 30s, as the ANOO audit talks about. I think original cost, Richard, was about $35 billion. The audit talks about the fact that it will be upwards of uh, beyond $45 billion. so so there's some of the, the the blowouts that are talked about. You just mentioned, I want to drill down on something in your article. You know, your article talks a lot about risk. Um, you mentioned in there uh, and you just flagged that the ANAO audit said that the government knowingly selected uh, the approach with the highest risk and highest potential for capability performance. Um, would you mind drilling down on how you interpret this decision? What do you think some of the potential implications are for the program's success? So the first thing I guess I'd, I'd sort of flag is that, from my perspective at least, I would say that this is not a an unusual choice. Um, certainly in terms of of, of naval shipbuilding, defence has a, a something of a track record of of doing this. There are exceptions. I would say the the two most or well, the most notable of that being the the current ANZAC class frigates, the ones that the Hunter class are designed to replace, um, and to a lesser extent the um, current destroyers, the air warfare destroyers. But if you look across a wider sort of sweep of, of projects, I think it, it's clear that the Australian approach um, 
for a number of reasons is generally to go with uh, the the design that offers the the greatest capability, but also potentially comes with the greatest risk. And I think Collins, the current submarines, um, is a, a classic example of that. Now, I should flag, and, and I think there's been some quite negative reporting and, and discussion of this and of, of this sort of decision. I don't see going with greater risk for more capability as necessarily a problem. Ultimately, we want to get the best ships for the RAN to have and for to be operating in, in what is a difficult strategic environment. The question for me is very much around balancing risk. And I think you're already beginning to see some of the, the implications of the issues that have come out of this. I think it's quite clear now that many of the issues that are facing the project have stemmed from risks that were known at the time. So design immaturity was one of them. And the other one that plays very clearly in this is is the major Australianization of the design, i.e. very significant changes that are being made to the design in order to to suit it to Australian requirements. That, in many ways, makes perfect sense. Of course, you want a design that is, is, is the one that's best suited for Australia. But taking an immature design and then trying to change it whilst it's still being evolved back in Britain is is where I think you're beginning to have, or where you have seen some of these real issues come out. To the degree that actually um, it's now potentially putting the entire endeavour in jeopardy, we still need to see what comes out of the the review into surface combatants, which is supposed to uh, be released in, in the third quarter of the year. But I'd be very surprised not to see significant changes to this project. But even if we sort of ignore that and look at simply what's in the, the ANAO report, you're already seeing implications of this decision to go with greater risk and the problems that that's then caused. So currently, the RAN operates eight frigates um, under the Hunter class. That's to go up to nine. As part of the original program, that was to happen at the beginning of the construction cycle, i.e. you'd get the first two of the new frigates into the water before you decommission HMAS Anzac. So Australia would go from being an eight-frigate navy to a nine-frigate navy at the beginning of the project. Now, that's already now been switched to the end of the project. So that level of additional capability has been delayed by well over a decade. The delays are also seeing the Anzacs being forced to, to serve for longer which is coming at a time when the strategic situation is deteriorating. So this idea of, of trying to get the best capability, um, is it actually resulting in, in you having to, to maintain a far more limited capability in water for, for much longer? So there are some quite sort of significant issues there. It's a really interesting space, and I think you articulate well in your article and, and as you have done there, some of those issues around risk, where you accept risk, uh, and some of the challenges around accepting risk in the in the design phase. Um, there's a particular quote in your article that I really like, and you um, you attribute to uh, British Admiral John Fisher the quote of "Half a loaf is better than no bread." We strain at the gnat of perfection and swallow the camel of unreadiness. And it really stuck out with me. And in some ways, I thought that the recent Defence Strategic Review for Australia kind of echoed those comments when it talked about capability acquisition. What were you thinking when you included that quote? I think it, it's a, a great quote and from um, someone who definitely knew something about shipbuilding. So I think it's it's not a problem that is by any means uniquely Australian or uniquely sort of contemporary. Uh, this is a challenge which has been been there for pretty much as long as people have been building warships. So I think that that it's 
it's worth, I guess, sort of framing that and, and acknowledging that there aren't simple answers. That's the other thing that, that I, I kind of, particularly as a, uh, someone who's very much a, a commentator in all of this, uh, it's easy for us to, to pick apart decisions that are made by others and not necessarily accept that they are very, very complicated decisions and they are invariably made with the, the best intentions uh, at the time. But if coming back to, to your remark about the DSR, I think it did highlight a lot of these issues and it talks a lot about things like trying to use more um, what's known as military off the shelf. Um, this applies not only in the, the naval space, but more generally. My question with this is, is that this is not new. If you look at the, what is it, the Canade Review of Defence Procurement in 2003, the Mortimer Review of Defence Procurement in 2008, they both say exactly the same sort of things. Similar things have, have come up since. The question is whether or not that can be actioned. And that is the key question. Look, considering the time, Richard, I'd like to move along to another article that you wrote uh, in September of last year, which had a, a really particularly catchy title, to be honest. Orca Submarines, A Capability in Search of a Strategy. Would you mind talking about your, your key points in this article and where you were coming from with that title? I think one of the, the, the things that really struck me, and by no means only me, uh, with, with this is the scale and scope of this decision which was announced in September uh, 2021. Um, I wrote this this article. Um, I was asked to, to do so on on the the first anniversary. So it's it's before a lot of the, the the more recent developments. But the decision was taken pretty much came out of a, a clear blue sky. There was very very little expectation of this decision. And um, there was some discussion about that the so-called Plan B, a replacement for the French attack class submarines, which was seen as as being a project very much in trouble. But I don't think anyone really anticipated the AUKUS uh, announcement particularly. So it came without any of the, the usual uh, sort of wider discussion or efforts to try and, I guess, sort of bring both the sort of the strategic community, but also the, the wider Australian community along with it. It's also, I think, been and remains to a degree unclear what the strategic assumptions are behind that decision. I think on a high level, it's relatively clear what's driving this on a sort of strategic um, level. But if you look, for example, at only, what, 13 months beforehand, the same government had released the Defence Strategic Update, which set out the challenges. And yes, okay, challenges can change slightly in that 13 months, but I don't think they were radically different in September 2021 to what they were in August 2020. And the DSR sets out quite clearly that 12 conventionally powered submarines are the answer. Now, we know that there are issues with the project going on there, but that leaves this question of what has changed between August 2020 and September 2021. And the other element that plays into this, uh, and I think it's, it's something to which we, we don't really know the answer, but we, we get flashes and indications is the degree to which this is a decision driven as much by capability issues and domestic politics issues versus the degree to which this was carefully thought through from a, a, a strategic perspective. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, and I, I would, would highlight this, it doesn't mean it's a bad decision, but it just means that I think there remain questions and, and areas where we need to think carefully about how we explain the decision and justify what grounds it was made upon. Now, I think since I wrote the piece, I think actually a lot has been 
sort of done in that space. And I would, would suggest that actually some of the discussion by sort of Chief of Navy, by the Defence Minister, uh, Richard Miles, um, and others has done a, a pretty good job of explaining at least some of, of the, the, the benefits. But I would continue to flag that this is a project where there remain very big question marks in terms of things like risk. This is a very, very risky project. Also in terms of things like opportunity cost, in terms of both defence. Um, so what things are you cutting as part of the defence strategic review in order to facilitate what is becoming this so-called focused defence force, but also in terms of wider government spending and justifying it that to the public. So I think there is remains a need for a, a kind of a clear debate to develop and ensure that public support for this uh, remains strong if it is something that, that Navy and Defence believe is, is essential. One of the, the points that I, I flag on, on a number of occasions is that the Navy or Defence funded a, a, a RAND report um, of lessons learned coming out of the, the Collins class acquisition. And one of the first and most important lessons that's flagged is the requirement to bring politicians and the public along and to have sort of more transparency and better communication. And I think that remains a, a really important aspect of this project. And I think it will only become more important as we go forward. Thanks, Richard. I th it's, uh, it's really interesting how you talk about, you know, strategy must come before capability. And sometimes that's not readily transparent that that is occurring. Ideally, in a theoretical world, strategy uh, comes before capability. Now, in reality, I think that's a, a far more difficult position to be in or, or, or sort of thing to, to follow through because capability also affects strategy. These things are in conversation constantly. But you do need to have that very clear sense of what is driving this and, and, and particularly for a decision on this scale, what is it that really justifies taking this step? I think it's difficult for anyone who's been following the space to say they were surprised that the the attack class contract was cancelled or amended. There was there was lots of murmurings that it was potentially not on track. But for a country that doesn't have a civil nuclear industry, it did seem to be a, a fairly large surprise to commentators that we intended to acquire nuclear submarines. And I think uh, you know your your comments about risk uh, are really valid. And I think that that does seem to be acknowledged by the defence minister and the Department of Defence highlighting that this will, will be ambitious. There's a quote that Mark Hammond uses that I don't quite have off the top of my head, but he does talk about it as one of the most ambitious projects. I think he says since the Snowy Hydra, which I'm, I'm not sure they're great comparisons, but I think what he's trying to do there is, is highlight that there is risk, but it's important. And, and I think to its credit, phase one and phase two of the AUKUS Optimal Submarine Pathway, which talk about phase one, uh, the Submarine Rotation Force West of UK and US submarines, uh, so we get used to the uh, nuclear uh, boats, both operating them, uh, and obviously there's a, a series of exchanges and training in the lead up to that. Uh, and then phase two, the acquisition of the Virginia class is, is certainly a, a helpful uh, roadmap to try and de-risk it. But I agree, there are serious conversations about risk with that project. Uh, I'm, I'm currently in Canada and I was speaking at the uh, Canadian Global Affairs Institute seminar on anti-submarine warfare today. And, you know, you really just need to look at the Indo-Pacific. So 75% of the world's non-US submarines are in the Indo-Pacific. 
and I think I had a figure that uh, 30 years ago, there was one Southeast Asian country that operated submarines. Now there are five with two more on its way. So certainly um, you can see why there, there needed to be something that changed the dynamic, but whether nuclear submarines were the answer is, I guess, yet to be seen. Yeah, I think that it's also this question of opportunity cost that, that comes with this, because to what degree do we see uh, this beginning to play out in terms of, of impacts on, on wider RAN capability, for example? I've talked elsewhere and, and, and used the example of the British acquisition of Polaris, which was a similarly sort of very large kind of project and which had significant impacts on the Royal Navy's wider capability to the degree that the first Sea Lord at one point described it as the cuckoo in the nest. So I think there are questions, and, and I don't think I'm, I'm alone in suggesting that there are potential downsides, even from a, a, a naval perspective. That doesn't, again, mean that this is necessarily the, the, the wrong decision, but it's a decision that needs to be understood in its widest context. Yes, I mean, $368 billion, I think, is, is the figure quoted uh, which is accepted to be obviously not an exact figure at this range. And I think there's about 50% uh, contingency funds wrapped up in that, so about $123 billion. It's certainly uh, something that will put a, a squeeze on the defence budget. Excuse the, the pun referencing Aspie's defence budget brief, worth a read. Uh, and it will cause some challenges. It is pleasing to see that there is some more money coming for defence from 26-27, which uh, should accommodate at least uh, for some aspects of the cost of that project. Richard, USVs, so uncrewed surface vessels, uh, something I'm quite interested in, quite passionate about. You've written a bit on this, and I know you've uh, recently published in uh, Marine Policy uh, on uncrewed naval vessels and the span of maritime tasks. Would you mind talking about some of your key points? So this is a piece that came up actually largely out of teaching. I was trying to teach this concept and, and I was looking around for someone who'd written something on it and I couldn't find anything. So I thought, oh, well, I'll have to bite the bullet and kind of do it myself. I think USVs are a fascinating space or uncrewed platforms more generally, but USVs, I think, potentially uh, more than, than most because they have this potential, which I think is, is relatively widely accepted, to be exceptional warfighting platforms. Uh, this is certainly the frame through which the, the US Navy is looking at them. I think there are still questions as to whether we're there yet. And the Americans are, are pushing ahead with the acquisition of what they describe as the LUSV, large, uncrewed, or unmanned, as they would describe it, uh, surface vehicle, which is effectively uh, verging on an arsenal ship with a number of, of VLS, vertical launch system missile tubes, which can launch and, and engage in, in, in combat. So this is a, a really important step forward. And the first acquisition is supposed to start in 2025. So we're really not very far away from this going from being a theoretical concept into something that's much more tangible. But I guess my interest in this and the way I'm, I'm sort of looking at it is the fact that USVs in many ways lack a number of the key characteristics that actually make warships really useful. If you look at doctrine, whether it's Australian maritime doctrine or British maritime doctrine, or you look at some of the big thinkers, so someone like Jeff Till or Ken Booth, about what it is that makes warships particularly valuable, especially in a, a non-high-intensity combat environment. Uh, and there's a number of attributes that are listed, but one of them is flexibility. 
i.e. the ability to be able to do lots and lots of different missions and also be able to switch between those missions relatively quickly and easily. And another one is symbolism, this idea that warships are more than merely bits of kit. And I think this then plays through in a, in a number of, of areas. And, and what I did in the article was took the, the span of maritime tasks from Australian maritime doctrine, which is a derivative of Ken Booth's trinity of, of maritime tasks or naval tasks, and then tried to look at the, the different tasks and sort of begin to question what is it that USVs could do. And if you looked at something like humanitarian aid and disaster relief operations, something like a, a large uncrewed surface vehicle might be great at fighting high-intensity conflict, but actually, in terms of helping out in a tsunami situation in Tonga, much less useful. Things like it doesn't have huge amounts of accommodation space, it doesn't necessarily have the production of fresh water, it doesn't have the crew itself, which is an important uh, tool in terms of these sorts of things. So there's a number of, of areas where actually taking the crew off the ship has advantages, but also has significant disadvantages. And this plays through even in, in smaller shifts towards autonomy, something like taking away a, a crewed helicopter and replacing it with a couple of different ASW UAVs. This is something that the Royal Navy has been playing around with and talking about. Again, has potentially really significant warfighting advantages. But if you want to evacuate people off the roof of an embassy in Libya, having an uncrewed helicopter is problematic. Similarly, if you want to get a doctor in to an earthquake-struck area, again, not having a, a crude platform potentially causes real issues. I think you could look and, uh, across some of the other tasks and you'll see similar sorts of problems. So constabulary operations, for example, uncrewed platforms have amazing potential in terms of, of ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, basically being able to look at large expanses of the maritime domain and find out what's going on there. If you then push it a little bit further and say, well, what happens next? You begin to see some more issues coming up. How does a USV conduct a search? Can they board another vessel? What happens if, for example, uh, an Australian USV came across an illegal fisher in the northern waters and it didn't stop? Can it use force. I think that if you look at the, the rules around that, it becomes very, very problematic. There's a whole host of areas where USVs have real potential in terms of the, the high-end warfighting capability, but actually when you pull it back and look at lots of the tasks that navies do on a day-to-day -day basis, there's a, a lot of other issues that still need to be thought through and worked through. You're absolutely right. Most people who write on the subject talk either about the, the high-end warfighting or, or the legal aspects, but not necessarily the, the span of maritime tasks. I, I do think uh, your comments about constabulary operations um, are interesting. I think USVs do have a lot of potential, as you mentioned, for providing that intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. But having worked with USVs quite recently on constabulary operations, there are still a lot of um, operational limitations, as you mentioned, in that space. And I think too, with the the, the warfighting tasks and the you know the great potential of USVs in this, I think often the discussion around their potential gets distorted by people not really factoring in some of the the operational limitations 
that that come with US fees, you know, whether whether they can defend themselves, what that means, the legal considerations, how do you sustain it on operations? How do you do the maintenance on it if it's not crude? I think there's a lot of challenges wrapped up in that. Absolutely. I think there's been some very interesting stuff discussed around maintenance and the shift from a, a so-called maintainer-operator model in something like a, the littoral combat ship, a shift much more towards a, an operator-only model, i.e. A crew on board ships doing less and less maintenance. And this has caused a whole load of problems, even in crewed vessels. And if you push that then to uncrewed vessels, actually, that's really difficult. I'm by no means an engineer, but I'm I'm reliably informed that actually even getting what are relatively well-known bits of, of kit, marine engineering kit, to, to operate for very long periods of time with no kind of maintenance or oversight is actually very difficult. And that then plays into some of the, the wider questions behind this. A lot of the drive towards USVs and, and other things is around cost, the idea that, that you can do more with less. And actually, if you're having to massively over-engineer these things, and then you're having to do much more deep maintenance because you're not doing the little maintenance as you go along. So actually, you need much more intensive overhauls by external contractors. Are you actually gaining many of the, the cost-saving advantages that you think you're going to get? So there's there's so much that remains unknown. And that's why I, I think it's it's very interesting to see the Americans pushing ahead so sort of uh, strongly with this. Um, and I think you're, you're already seeing Congress is, is clearly raising some some very serious questions about whether or not they think that the US Navy is following the right path with it. Yes, I, I do think it is unlikely that we will see a, a combat USV from the US Navy in 2025, although I know that is the, the time frame. But uh, I guess we will see. I think really there's a, there's an interesting conversation to be had and, and probably scalable to, to any capability, uncrewed or otherwise, about you really need to understand how you want to effectively employ that capability and its operational limitations um, before you bring it into the force. And I think there's, you know, there's a lot of analogies being drawn between UAVs, USVs, and UUVs. But uh, you know, one of the key constraints for both USVs and UUVs is that the environment that they are operating in and the speeds that they are operating at are fundamentally different. Yes, and even down to things like. A UAV has a very similar kind of maintenance cycle to a crewed aircraft. The pilot doesn't get out of an aircraft halfway through and start to tinker with things and make sure everything's working okay. So maintenance is all done on the ground at the end of the mission. Similarly, with a, a UAV, that is a very different kind of, of scenario. So I think there's a whole host of questions and challenges that, that remain unanswered. But picking up on your earlier point about understanding what you want to do with these things, it's a really interesting area, and, and one of the things that I, I really push my my students over when we talk about this is around this relationship between new technology and existing strategy or concept of operations, and how actually you have to put those two into conversation because you want to adapt the technology to what you want to do. But if you look at examples of particularly revolutionary type technologies, of which I think we can suggest that this might be one. Actually, the technology itself can change how you want to conduct your operations. So you need to have flexibility from both sides. You need to be able to adapt the technology to suit what you want to do, and you need to be able to adapt what you want to do to make the best out of the technology. And getting that balance right is really hard. I guess the the one thing I would say about the USVs is the sense that this is something of a, a magic bullet 
um, a way of solving the, the questions around escalating costs of platforms and declining platform numbers. And I just am yet to be convinced that this is a simple magic bullet type solution in the way that perhaps has been presented to the United States Congress in particular. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Dr. Richard Dunley, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a, a fascinating discussion. No problem. Thank you for having me. We would like to extend our sincerest thanks to Dr. Richard Dunley for joining us today to talk about a spectrum of topical maritime issues for Australia, including the Hunter Class Acquisition Program and its recent audit, orca submarines and uncrewed surface vessels. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following Saltwater Strategists wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our podcast sponsor, BAE Systems, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely and important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.